If you would, please join me in taking your Bibles out once again and turning to Acts chapter 13. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him and ask His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed, we need Your help. We need Your assistance. We need Your divine enabling grace to help us understand your truth and to have a desire and a growing ability to put your truth into practice. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Here we are at week 33 in our series, looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts. I want to begin by asking a question. It's a simple question, and I expect uh, all of us to answer it. Uh, Probably it'd be best silently to ourselves, but here's the question. Are you free? Are you free? Now, some of us may say, yes, of course. I'm not a slave. I'm not in bondage. And and guess what? I live where? In the land of the free. Of course I'm, I'm free. I want to ask another question. What what's the biggest problem you're facing right now? What is the absolute biggest, largest, most insurmountable problem that you're facing right now? And I would imagine that problem is burdensome to you. And that problem, if not solved or fixed, is going to have consequences. The other day, I ran across an article entitled, God guilt, and then what? Here's how God guilt, and then what started. Most people in the U.S. where I live believe in God and sin. Surveys show that 90% of Americans believe in God and 87% believe in sin. So when I share the gospel, I appeal to both those beliefs and tell people they need Jesus. Trouble is, most don't think they do. Only 28% of Americans agree with the statement, I am a sinner and I depend on Jesus to overcome my sin. More people, 34%, say, I am a sinner and I work on being less of one. The rest say sin doesn't exist or they're not a sinner or they're okay with being a sinner. In other words, instead of relying on Jesus, people accept one of two other options. They think sin isn't really a big problem, or they think they can overcome sin on their own. That's right. Sin is man's biggest problem. Sin is my biggest problem. Sin is your biggest problem. Why? It separates us from God. It it's not only means that we're at odds with God, but, but we're at enmity with God. So if you are aware of sin uh, and the burden of sin and its consequences, uh, what are you doing about it? If it's a problem, what are you doing about it? And there are 
two basic ways that mankind in general and probably you and me in particular deal with it. We either blow it off or we try to work it off. In other words, we either ignore it, deny it, bury it, or we attack it in one way or another. This week was a good week for articles because I also ran across 10 flavors of works-based salvation. And as you hear these words, think of them as 10 ways you can attack the problem of sin. The work of philanthropy, the work of service, the work of ritual, the work of comparison, the work of comprehension, the work of decision, the work of restitution, the work of affliction, the work of meditation, and the work of seeking affirmation. Now, I, even though that's 10 flavors of works-based salvation, I think that also is a helpful unfolding of the ways we may try to work it off, attack it, weighed down with sin, weighed down with the guilt and shame of sin, hiding, hoping it will just one day go away. Many of us at times live lives of, of quiet defeat. We've given up in the fight against sin. And, and that quiet defeat sometimes leads to acute despair. So let me revisit these questions once more. Are you free? Are you free? And, and what's the biggest problem you're facing right now? Well, when it comes to the burden of sin, to the consequences of sin, would you like to be able to exclaim these most likely familiar words? Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Well, I have good news for all of us this morning as together we will hear the message of this salvation and the good news of what God promised He has fulfilled. There's some well-known speeches in the U.S. You just heard the last few words of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech on the March on Washington, August of 1963. Another well-known speech is Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, four score in seven years. Yes, some speeches are just memorable and well-known. Well, in Acts, there are several important speeches and sermons. We've already seen two. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost and, and Stephen's speech uh, before his martyrdom, before his execution. Well, today we're going to look at Paul's inaugural sermon. Paul has been preaching, he's been teaching, but this is the first time Luke has recorded uh, uh, kind of the, an entire sermon, a summary of Paul's sermons. Uh, in Paul's sermon, uh, you're going to hear themes that he will explore in depth in his letter to the Galatians and in his letter to the Romans. In fact, those of you that were with us from the, for the study through Galatians may remember all the themes of justification and, and forgiveness that came from Galatians. And, and this is kind of uh, the lead-off sermon to that. 
Well, last week uh, we were in the first 12 verses of chapter 13, the church, the Holy Spirit, and mission. It was the third phase of Acts 1-8 where the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and now to the ends of the earth. And we saw the transition from Paul, excuse me, Peter being central now to Paul being central. And this is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. We saw that uh, both in Antioch of Syria and, and there on Cyprus that the Holy Spirit is present and powerful at home, in the church, and abroad on the mission field. Well, let's look at verses 13 through 15 and set the scene of this next episode, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So we've moved from the island of Cyprus in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean into Europe, into southern Europe, into Asia Minor. They first go to the town of Perga. That's where John Mark left them, went back to Jerusalem. Then they went over the Taurus Mountains to Pisidian Antioch, about 100 miles inland. And this city of Pisidian Antioch is a Roman colony. It's a political and influential area, an economic influence. It is the capital of the Roman province of Galatia. And it's a governmental and military center. Remember that Paul says, He's going to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so they start by being in the synagogue. And and there's a liturgy where the law and the prophets are read. And then there's a sermon, an exposition of Scripture. And Paul was probably identified through his clothing as being a a rabbi. And so, hey, it's the unexpected blessing, right? Uh, the, the, The preacher's tired. He doesn't want to preach. He sees somebody else that can preach and they get word and they say, brothers, if you've got a word of exhortation for the people, give it. Uh, it's a sermon that explains the biblical text and its relevance to the congregation. There was a pattern in the, in the synagogue and Paul and Barnabas, as it were, took full advantage of that pattern. Now, although there are some Gentile God-fearers present, essentially you will see that this is address, an address to a Jewish audience. Later, Paul will speak to the Gentiles. We'll see he'll speak to the pagans of Lystra in chapter 14, and then to the philosophers of Athens in chapter 17. And he he adapts and adjusts his message for his audience. Now, our approach to this long text will be to use an expression found at the end to guide our exploration of the entire sermon of Paul's. We'll see that in verse 43, that after the sermon ended, Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. They urged them to continue in the grace of God. And we will see, therefore, the grace of God made known in the history of Israel, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in the offer of forgiveness that leads to freedom. So here's the outline. 
the history of Israel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the offer of forgiveness that leads to freedom. Let's take a look at verses 16 through 25. The grace of God is made known in the history of Israel. Beginning in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So here is a history from the patriarchs to the monarchy. And we, we see in that God's gracious provision for his people. God's gracious for his provision for his people. Think about it. God chose them. God took the initiative. He protected them. He made them a great nation of, in Egypt. He led them out with an outstretched arm. He, he bore with them in the wilderness. And he gave. He gave prophets. He gave judges. He gave, when people asked for a king, he gave them Saul. He had to remove Saul and he gave them David. He chooses them. He protects them. He, he guides them. He leads them. He bears with them. He's generous to them. He gives. You often hear people say, well, the God of the Old Testament this, but I believe in the God of the New Testament. My friends, it's the same God. God is gracious. He's merciful. He's committed to his people. There's 450 years mentioned in this history, 400 in exile in Egypt, 40 in the wilderness, and 10 in the conquest of the promised land. God graciously provides for his people. God takes the initiative. God is the main actor. And we see in this a focus on two men. David the king. Now, when Luke includes this, that, that, that this is what Paul said, Paul is provided with an opportunity through David to introduce God's greatest gift to Israel, the Savior, 
Jesus, and we see that in verse 23. He's brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Jesus, the one who is descended from David, as promised in 2 Samuel 7, where we read of God promising through David to raise up an offspring and to establish his kingdom forever. So Paul focuses first on David, but then he focuses on a prophet John the Baptist, David the king, and now John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, the one who, of course, points not to himself, but to the one coming after him, the one who he says, I must decrease and he must increase. Like Stephen's speech, we see in Paul's sermon that God has a record of being gracious to his people. And his people have a record of being stubborn and rebellious. God is gracious and God's people nonetheless rebel and are stubborn. The history of Israel is the history of God's gracious provision for his people. He raises up David. He brings onto the scene John the Baptist in order to provide a savior. Now, like the example of John the Baptist, Paul now directs his hearer's attention to the same Jesus. After introducing this Old Testament preparation, Paul now comes to the focus of his message. Because secondly, the grace of God is made known in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Join with me as I pick up reading verse 26 through 37. Brothers. Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And although they found in him no guilt worthy of death, They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up, raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So now is a focus on one man and the message of salvation. Paul is going to tell the story of Jesus, though briefly, as he has also just told the story of Israel. 
He's narrating the story of Jesus, showing from Scripture that it fulfilled the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Remember in Isaiah 55, 3, we read of the everlasting covenant that God has made with his people. David, the everlasting covenant that is fulfilled and comes to its true aim through Jesus. And he concentrates here on two saving events. If you heard before, there was a saving event, the exodus, and other events along the way in the wilderness and into the promised land. Well, here, Paul is going to focus on two saving events, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's going to demonstrate that both were the fulfillment of what God had foretold. First, the death of Jesus. Did you notice Paul didn't speak of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the the life of going around doing good and healing and preaching and teaching? No, he goes straight to the suffering of Jesus. The condemnation of Jesus, the death of Jesus. Paul shows us that the condemnation of Jesus was motivated, we see in verse 27, by a culpable ignorance. Kids, it's like when you learn to drive and, and you run through the red light and, and, and the police officer pulls you over and says, I'm going to have to give you a ticket. You ran the red light and you say, but officer, I didn't see the red light. I'm ignorant of the red light. Do you think that's a good excuse? No, you are culpably ignorant. We see that in verse 27. And it was undeserved in verse 28. There was no guilt found in Jesus that deserved death. The gospel accounts are clear. The acts are clear. Jesus didn't deserve to die. And yet, to fulfill Scripture... He was put on trial. He was condemned. He was executed. There's culpable ignorance. His condemnation is undeserved, and yet his condemnation was the fulfillment of Scripture. Look with me at verse 30. Verse 30 begins with, I would argue, are the two greatest words put together in Scripture, but God. But God. There's the death of Jesus But God raised him from the dead. There is the resurrection of Jesus. Here verses 32 and 33 again. We bring you, that's Paul in the synagogue. We bring you, that is the what? The the sons of the family of Abraham. We bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us their children. How? By raising Jesus. Kids, here it is again. Promise is made and promise is kept. The promise of a Savior. The promise that He was going to have to die. The promise that He would be raised. You see a fulfillment of Psalm 2, my son. You see a fulfillment of Isaiah 55, the holy and sure blessings of David. You see the fulfillment of Psalm 16, that his Holy One will not see corruption. By bringing Christ up from the grave, God secured salvation for us as we, when we together confess our faith using the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation. 
right in the center. So what God has promised in Scripture, He is now fulfilled in Jesus. And so after having brought Scripture and history together, Paul comes to his appeal. You see, the grace of God is not just made known in the history of Israel and not just in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the grace of God is made known in the offer of forgiveness that leads to freedom. And we see that in verses, beginning in verse 38. Listen to how he makes the appeal, beginning in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Here is the promise of forgiveness, the promise of freedom, the promise of justification. Because here the word freed in its original language can be rendered equally justified. That is declared innocent and not guilty. Here is the good news of divine grace, justification through faith in Christ alone. And as I mentioned earlier, from this sermon, you will see those themes worked out in much more detail in Galatians and in Romans. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. We spent quite a bit of time in chapter 2, verses 16. Actually, I'll begin in verse 15. Again, Paul, several months after being here in southern Galatia, writes the letter to the Galatians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And he ends that chapter in verse 21 saying, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And then turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We were there last week, I believe, for the assurance of pardon. Chapter 8, there's now... There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law of Moses. What it could and what it could not do. The law was not designed to enable sinful people to, to fix the problem. To repair the broken relationship with of God. Yes, there was a temporary system in place and the priest were the mediators. The sacrifice for sin. But it's through the law of Moses that there's no justification for anyone. Why? Because we all break the law 
And what does the law do? It condemns lawbreakers. And yet, as Paul writes in Romans 7, the law is holy and the commandments are righteous and good. You see, my friends, a high view of God's law makes us seekers after grace. You see how law serves grace. When we recognize that God's law is holy, it's a reflection of his character. And yet we know we fail in many ways to obey it and we fail to live up to it. What does a high view of God's law do? It makes us seek after God's grace. But yet we see that it's through Jesus that something is done that the law cannot do. And that is free people both from the guilt of sin and the bondage to sin. Through Christ there is pardon. Through the new life of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit there is power. And as you all know, one day there will be no more presence of sin. The freedom is from both the guilt of sin and, the, and freedom from the bondage to sin. There's justification and there's sanctification. You know, Sarah, we could have chosen a thousand more hymns. So many hymns come from this. Rock of Ages. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. And that's who Jesus is and that's what Jesus does consider this this man Jesus look at the prepositions through him and by him through him through this man and by him everyone who believes through him by him it's him it's Christ alone that forgiveness comes that that freedom comes Peter said earlier in Acts 4, there is no other name given among men by which man can be saved except Jesus. And we could now sing in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Hey kids, if you were to draw a picture of this sermon, I think an outline, or excuse me, a, 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 a rough sketch of an hourglass would do the trick. Why? Because Israel's history all funnels down to one person, one man, this man. And from this man and through this man comes the blessings of forgiveness and freedom and life. You see, all the sand comes to this one narrow point, this one man, Jesus. And then from this narrow point, it broadens out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To who? To everyone who believes. And after this, Paul, the good preacher, warns the people. Verse 40, beware Therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk, who, who uh, 
denounce, reminds, in order to remind people of how the prophet Habakkuk denounced Israel's unbelief, that the Chaldeans were going to come and they were going to execute judgment on God's behalf. And indeed, that did happen. It's a warning. It's a warning. And then we read the response. Beginning in verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. You see, God's promise verses 38 through 39, and God's warning, verses 40 and 41, should move the hearer to trust in Jesus. Did you notice what happened in this response? The people said, we want to hear more of what you have to say. We want to hear more of what you have to say. So let me ask you this question. When you hear God's word, preached, when you hear God's word taught, when you yourself read God's word, do you want more? Do you? Someone reminds me often that what should happen on a Sunday, on the Lord's day during a worship service is all our appetites for God's word should be whetted. Some of us grew up on candy cotton candy. And so when we're exposed to the meat and potatoes of God's word, sometimes it's a big adjustment, isn't it? But we develop a taste and a longing and an appetite for God's word. So when you hear God's word, when you read God's word, do you want more? Does the 35 minutes up here weekly whet your appetite for more? I hope it does. And the second thing we notice is the people said, we want to follow you because we want to know what you know and we want to go where you go. So let me ask all of us this question. Who are you following? You see, we're, we're all following somebody and somebody is going somewhere. And when you're following somebody, you're eventually going to get to where they're going. Who are you following? Do the words of Jesus echo throughout your day? Come, follow me, Jesus said. Whoever would follow me must, what, deny himself, take up his cross? Whoever would come after me and, what, follow me? Who you're following really matters. Can, can you follow people that, like Paul would say later, follow me as I follow Christ? Do you want to hear more? Who are you following? I want to go back to where we began. August of 1963 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream address for the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Do you know that event was called the March on Washington for jobs and freedom? Uh, we've already been reminded of how that speech ends. 
But I want to ask, do you know how it begins? Do you know how the speech begins? Here's how it begins. These are his first words. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Well, my friends, we have been reading about and focusing in on the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of the world, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows, or God demonstrates, His love for us in this. And while we were still sinners, buried under the weight of the guilt and shame of sin, struggling to get out from underneath it, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ paid the price. We don't pay the price. Somebody else does. The greatest demonstration for freedom that the world has ever known. The freedom from sin. Freedom through forgiveness. No, the guilt is dealt with. The, the power of sin is, address, is decisively cut. But I want to end with the fourth point or the fourth part to this sermon. And it's a question for you. We saw how the grace of God was made known, demonstrated in the history of Israel, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in the offer of forgiveness that leads to freedom. But here's the fourth part of the sermon, and it's a question for you. Is the grace of God known in your life? Is the grace of God demonstrated in your life? Are you? Free at last. Well, just as God defeated all Israel's enemies and brought them into the promised land, so through Jesus Christ, He has defeated our two big enemies, sin and death. You see, in chapter 19 of Revelation, there is one who is called faithful and true. And he has decisively conquered all his and our enemies. And so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of this sermon that were preserved in your word. We thank you, Father, that you rescued a rebel, that he met Jesus and his life became new. And through him, you have extended this good news of the gospel all the way from Pisidian Antioch to Florence, Kentucky and all over the world. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace 
that we see clearly through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Father, we thank you that Jesus lived the life of obedience that we should live. And he died in our place for the rebellious life of disobedience that we do live. Oh, Father, we thank you for his doing and his dying in our place and on our behalf. Father, forgive us for all the varied ways that we try to free ourselves. Help us to rest and rely on Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. For he is the one and the only one where we can find forgiveness and where we can find freedom. For we pray in his name. Amen.